Let me be the first, or perhaps one of the first, to welcome you to the season of Advent and the beginning of the new liturgical year. Advent is one of my favorite seasons of the liturgical year. In fact, it may be my favorite season. Some of my favorite texts make their way into the readings. Um, in fact, I, as I tried to write this sermon, I kept wanting to write a sermon for next week's text because those are the ones I really liked, um, but I, I restrained. Um, some of our hymns are my favorite hymns. If you reflect upon what it means for the church to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. If you reflect on what it means for the church to sing those words, you will have hit on many of the, the themes that I consider prominent in a truly biblical theology. The church's new Israel. The idea of a delayed or extended exile. God returning at last to, deal, to dwell with his people the Messiah as the one who brings an end to the exile. And the list could go on. Yet as much as I love this season of Advent, I also recognize that it is a very complex season, perhaps the most complex season in the liturgical calendar. So complex, in fact, that uh, when the, the women's order exchange was going on and, and Andrew graciously um, watched Anna and Luke so that Michelle and Joy could kind of relax for an evening. After I got off work, I, I went to Andrew's to kind of hang out with him and, and watch the kids, and I said to him, this was Friday night, I have no idea what I'm preaching on. Um, <laughs> and, and I thought I would figure it out Saturday night, and I still didn't. So it, it's a very complex season. Some seasons, like Christmas and Easter, are relatively straightforward. Even if we may never fully comprehend the significance of their truth. Christmas is about the singular, massive moment when God forever united himself to humanity and to his creation. Easter is about the singular, massive moment when God raised his son from the dead and thereby secured victory for humanity over death and over the grave and ushered in the inauguration of the promised new creation. Advent, however, is not so simple, even if its truths are perhaps not so profound. Instead of remembering and celebrating a singular massive moment in redemptive history, in Advent we find ourselves not really celebrating, but waiting. And waiting not for one moment, but for two. The season of Advent ties itself and our waiting to both the first and second coming of the Son of God, what we refer to even more confusingly, as the first and second advent. Catch that advent is a season of waiting for an advent. It's <laughs> advent is a season of expectation and preparation, both for the first and second coming of Jesus the Messiah. It is a season of waiting. We wait liturgically for his first advent which we rehearse each year through the church calendar. We wait historically, communally, individually. I'm not sure what word fits best there, but we, we wait for it, an actual event 
in history that has yet to come. We wait historically for his second advent. Liturgically for his first, historically, or, or perhaps some better word for his second. These two poles then, stuck in the middle and at the end of redemptive history, govern our thinking about the season of Advent. It is therefore important for us to consider how these two Advents, how these two poles are related. As soon as we begin to think this through, however, I think we feel a kind of jarring juxtaposition and certain questions begin to arise. First, besides the fact that we confess them to be the same person, what does the joy of the baby in the manger have to do with the warnings about the coming judge? Aren't waiting for Christmas and waiting for the second coming two radically different things? When I think of Christmas or waiting for Christmas, I think of joy, peace, love, the greatest gift ever given. But when I think of the second coming, I think of fear and wrath and judgment. Common worship suggests that the liturgies and readings of Advent are meant to challenge the modern reluctance to confront the theme of divine judgment. And that's all fine and good, But how does that relate to waiting for Christmas? Am I supposed to hold these two waitings in tension together, both joy at Christmas and fear of judgment? Or is there some better way to think about this jarring juxtaposition? Second, in some of our readings for Advent, the emphasis seems to be on the renewal of creation, or at least of Judea, and if you kind of think about the prophetic text that talk about the renewal of Jerusalem or Judea, it always has a global significance. While in others, the emphasis seems to be on the dissolution of creation. So Jeremiah speaks in our reading this morning about Yahweh fulfilling the promises he made to the houses of Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The promise of a king who would set all things to rights and rule in justice and righteousness. The surety of this covenant, the prophet declares, is in the very foundation of creation itself. Jeremiah says shortly after our reading, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. But this imagery of God's faithfulness to David and to Judah and to Israel, a faithfulness based in the created order itself, must be contrasted with the strong language we hear in the context of our gospel reading. Jesus says, this is immediately before our reading, um, The way the lectionary edits the text, you might be inclined to think that that language about sort of cosmic destruction was about something future. But if you hear the whole context, something else seems to be in mind. Jesus says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then our reading picks up. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. In Jeremiah, Jerusalem, quote, will dwell secure because of the coming descendant of David. In Luke, that coming descendant of David declares that Jerusalem will be surrounded by enemies and trampled underfoot because its desolation has come near. What are we to make of these two Advent texts? Does Jesus come to restore and reestablish Jerusalem as part of a restored and reestablished creation? Or does Jesus come to judge and destroy this creation? Announcing in his first advent the desolation of Jerusalem and coming in his second to do the same to the rest of the world. In other words, Jesus comes promising us a kingdom. But is that a kingdom of this world, a physical kingdom, or a spiritual kingdom? When the, king, when the Son of God comes, when his kingdom comes, what are we expecting him to bring? The renewal of creation or our release from creation? Now, what I want to do is provide my own interpretation of Advent that I think answers these questions um, and tries to make some sense out of these, these tensions. That same Friday night, I told Andrew, this is kind of what I'm thinking about. And his response was, I quote, I think that's obviously wrong. <laughs> and don't forget, for a Canadian, that's pretty strong language. Now, after a bit of discussion, I think I swayed him slightly to my position, but at least you know that if you find yourself in utter disagreement, particularly with my, my first point, then you are in good priestly company. <laughs> Returning to the first question, then, the jarring Advent juxtaposition between waiting for joy in regard to the first Advent and waiting for judgment in regard to the second. What I'd like to suggest is that the felt dissonance between the two waitings has more to do with our celebration of Advent than it does the logic of Advent itself. Given the proximity of Advent to Christmas, it's easy to think that Advent is actually about waiting for Christmas. However, if we are to place ourselves in the sandals of our Second Temple brethren, I think it is safe to say that very few Israelites were looking for anything like Christmas or the Incarnation. Let me explain. The hope of Israel, that for which she longed and waited, wasn't the Incarnation. That's the surprise twist of Christmas. That's the thing, that's the thing that makes the angels stand up and sing. That's not what they were waiting for. What the hope of ancient, what the hope of Israel, the hope of Israel, that for which she longed and waited, was for a king and a kingdom. 
We sang it this morning. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Now, of course, no Christian description of the first advent would be adequate without accounting for Christmas and the incarnation. But in terms of the waiting, of what we engage in this season, in terms of the waiting of the preparation and and expectation of advent, advent is kingdom theology. It is about waiting for the coming king and his coming kingdom. Advent is the season of waiting both liturgically and historically for the coming of the king. In this way, we let Christmas actually be Christmas. Throughout Advent, we wait in exile with longing and expectation for the coming king who will set all things right. And then on Christmas, when we feel we can wait no longer, we hear the angel's song and the testimony of wise men and shepherds and the holy family, and our hearts are filled with joy because our king has been born. And even more so, because to our shock and surprise, our king is God incarnate. But that's Christmas. The God-man in the manger is Christmas. Advent is about the coming of the king. And from this perspective, the two poles of Advent are no longer a jarring juxtaposition, but are in fact in complete harmony. We, just as our spiritual ancestors were, wait expectantly for the arrival of our king and his kingdom. This is where our mind should be focused this season. Not on the incarnate God in the manger, but on the coming king. Advent isn't about waiting for Christmas. It's about waiting for our king and his kingdom. What then of the second question? Does Jesus come to build or to tear down? Does he offer us a physical kingdom or a spiritual kingdom somewhere beyond the stars? These are important questions. We all know that Jesus spoke and preached about the kingdom of God. But we can't assume that we all mean the same thing when we hear those words. When I say Advent is kingdom theology or a kingdom season, it is important that we know exactly what we mean by that word, kingdom. Now, I trust that given how frequently this topic arises in the teaching and preaching of all souls, you know where our answer lies. The night is far spent, and the day is at hand, and the kingdom that comes with the dawning of the day is God's kingdom for this created world. The salvific hope of the prophets and the apostles and our king himself isn't that we would merely go to heaven when we die. That is part of the story, but it is not the end of the story. The kingdom which Jesus offers us, the kingdom which we pray to come every Sunday, is a kingdom entered fully and finally not by the removal of the body, but by the resurrection of the body. Jesus comes both in his first and in his second advent to restore and renew the created order. But there is more to this story. Yes, Jesus comes to restore and renew, but he also comes as judge. This is a terrifying aspect of Advent. As I've said, in Advent we place ourselves in the sandals of our Jewish forefathers. And in that light, our gospel reading should drive us to repentance with fear and trembling. To put it mildly, when Jesus showed up in his first Advent, 
It didn't go so well for the people of God. Resting in the safety of our families and our traditions and our prayer books, it is easy to be lulled to sleep. To think that we are safe when danger is crouching at our door. But now is a time to wake out of sleep. For the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Now is our salvation. Or if we will not heed the prophet's warning, perhaps our judgment. Nearer than when we first believed. This is the terrifying aspect of Advent. When Jesus came, it was those who thought they were safe that were in the most danger. And we place ourselves in their sandals this season. What then are we to do? Advent is a season of waiting, but it is also a season of preparation. We live the Christian life not at one pole of Advent or at the other, but in between the two. We live in light of the first advent and in fear and hope of the second. The first coming isn't merely the preparation for the second, but it is both its anticipation and inauguration. We believe that the kingdom has indeed come in the person and work of Jesus. We confess that a mustard seed has been planted in the soil of this world. We proclaim that a little, a little leaven has entered the flower of this creation. And we boldly say that the cross of the Son of God has been stuck firmly in the history of this world as the inauguration of the promise of a better one that flows out from the empty tomb and eventually floods creation. In between the two advents, we are called to wait, yes, but we are also to live and work in light of that inaugurated and yet coming kingdom. We must get ready, for he will come again. And part of getting ready is living here and now by the rule of justice and righteousness that is coming with our king. This is our advent challenge, and it is our message to a watching and waiting world. In some ways, then, we take up the message of the prophets, particularly the message we sung from Isaiah 40. Like Jesus, we have been baptized and given the Holy Spirit. We are called to follow our King in the new way of life which he embodies. And in doing so, we announce to a desperate world in the exile of sin and death that there is a new way of being human that has entered into this world. To borrow the language that we sung, we must live in such a way that we announce to the world, if she will only heed the call of her king, then her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Isaiah says that a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. In the same way may we filled by the spirit of our king and fueled by his body and blood, by our words and actions and our giving, be a voice crying in our schools and our homes and our jobs. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.